Welcome back, my friends. Today, as we continue our series on Shara HaBetochen, learning how to trust in Hashem, as we discover the methodology to living with a sense of certainty. Today, we are going to kind of turn the corner. Nechavis HaLavavis, that's the larger tome with a book that this particular gate is a part of, provides strategies for holy living, for healthy living, for holistic living. Rabbeinu Bechaya demonstrates how our material and our physical welfare and our spiritual success are not mutually exclusive. Because we as human beings are more than anything, soul, not flesh. If we don't have a sense of inner contentment, if we don't have a sense of satisfaction, fulfillment, self-actualization, we may have our biological needs met, but we will not achieve a sense of happiness and we won't be fulfilled. The big question that I think many people have. And I'd like to humbly suggest many, if not most, make a tragic mistake about is where, quote, end quote, religion fits into all of this. Even people who consider themselves to be very religious have this notion that when they're involved in something religious, that they're doing something which is connected to God or holy. But there's a large part of life which is not infused with, or for that matter, connected to at all, the concept of religion. And Torah says that that is entirely wrong-headed. It's mistaken. We have a, a verse in the scripture. Solomon says in his Proverbs, In all of your ways, you know him. Our sages used even more overarching terminology. They said, All of your actions, all of your actions. That includes everything from resting to vacationing from personal grooming to eating and our relationships. Everything we do should be l'shem shomayim for the sake of heaven. Relationship with God isn't something we have on occasion. It defines us as human beings. We are, after all, created in God's image and as such, everything that we do 
everything we say, everything we even think, can and should be punctuated with an awareness of that relationship. So there's, there's got to be a Torah way to do everything. There is. But not only is there a Torah way to do everything, not only is there a Torah way to speak about things, there's a Torah way to think about every single detail of our lives. I'm, I'm referring to attitudes, perspective, the way you view things. There's a Torah way. And as we've learned over the many, many illuminating episodes of Torah study in the Shara B'Tochen, just about everything is related to trust, related to B'Tochen. I have to tell you that I found from experience in trying to help others do a fair bit of trying to help people put their marriages or friendships back together. And I, th I think that trust is probably the single most important ingredient, certainly in a marriage. When there's a violation of trust, it's, a, it's not a detail. It's an overarching violation of the essential amino acids, the very foundation upon which the structure of marriage is built. A violation of trust is oftentimes unforgivable. It could take a lifetime to rehabilitate, to rebuild trust that was shattered. <laughs> Just as you understand, and I understand, that trust is so important in our interpersonal or intimate relationships, trust is so important in our relationship with Hashem. And that's where Today we're going to be opening a new dimension. So we've talked a lot about betachen, a lot about trust. And much of the application of a faith-filled attitude or trusting perspective on life up until this point has dealt with or evolved around personal income. Whether it's your basic needs or we talked about the possibility of a person having more than one actually needs. To the unnecessary opulence or luxury that so many people focus on today. It's all been about money. And I know some of you have commented, some of you with frustration. It's always about money. My answer has been, yeah, money is like an important part of life. You can't live without it. But today, Rabbeinu B'chaya is going to refocus our attention to another extremely important dimension of the human condition. And that is relationships with others. We are, by definition, social animals. We are creatures who are not only conditioned, but in fact 
inherently yearn for relationship with others. The need for companionship is deeply rooted. In fact, it was one of the first, if not the first thing, the first human being knew he was missing. Before we're told about physical hungry, him being physically hungry, before we're told about him wanting to satiate himself or slake his thirst, before we hear about a fruit that is forbidden, albeit enchanting and desirable, which becomes really by extension a euphemism and a metaphor in addition to its literal meaning for all of the things that glitter, beckon and enchant, and the things that are forbidden. And forbidden fruit always seems to look a lot more exciting. It always seems to be more engaging. So hunger is the paradigm for the things we want. Some things you might even need, but there's a kosher way to do it. But that wasn't the first thing that the human being was aware of or spoken to about. The first conversation that Adam has with God, as per biblical parlance, is Adam's yearning for relationship. He notices that all of the other living creatures around him seem to have companionship. Only the human was created alone. And there's much to be said about that. Nothing Hashem did was by accident. Everything was not only premeditated, but it was extremely focused and much of it was designed to teach us how to live in today's day and age when we have the privilege of social interaction and relationship. Therefore, a person was in fact created alone so that you know that one person can make a world of difference. We aren't only meaningful or important by virtue of our relationships. Even if we're all by ourselves, that's meaningful. God cares about us and knows about us. This morning I had a conversation with a, a very well-known legal expert. And he happened to share with me, and I suppose everything is Ashkoch Pratis, as part of our conversation, which was kind of wide-ranging, touched upon philosophy and theology and spirituality and law, and he shared with me a story that he is kind of privy to firsthand. A girl was brought into the hospital in a very bad state. And this young lady was suffering from the pangs of a breakup. Her boyfriend had dumped her. She was very, very despondent, very depressed. So she took a, a whole lot of terrible stuff to try and kill herself. And they wanted to pump her to get this poison out of her body. And she said, do not pump me. I want to die. Leave me alone. I didn't ask to be brought here. I want to die. And the chief of um, the department said, hey, if that's your wish, I, I can't get in the way. 
But there was a, a physician there, a doctor, and, and he was a, an observant Jew, and he, he wouldn't walk away from the patient. He went over to her and he said to her, why, why do you want to kill yourself? You're, you're a young person. You have a life in front of you. And she said, I can't conceive of life without my boyfriend, and, and, and I want to die. I'm so depressed, I want to die. And this physician said to her, God loves you. God cares about you. You as an individual, not you as somebody's friend or companion or lover. God cares about you. And if God placed you here, you have a purpose and you have a mission. And we don't really have the freedom to simply check out. This was the gist of the conversation. The person I was talking to wasn't there, and I certainly wasn't there. But what he told me was that this girl kind of responded incredulously. She said, God loves me? And he said, absolutely. You're really sure of that? He says, without a shadow of a doubt, he loves each and every one of us. And it like hit her. She said, wow, God loves me. God cares about me. He says, God cares about you as an individual. And she said, please take the poison out. And they, they pumped her, and he saved a life that day. So, so this is a very, very powerful lesson. It's a very, very important idea, this, this concept that all of us are created by God, and we're all descended from one human being. And this, our sages talk about this. And there are many amazing lessons that we can and will talk about together as we, as we move through this very important part of the Chavis HaLavavis, the Shara B'Tachim. But here's the point that I want to make. Adam was alone. He was a strange-looking androgynous creature initially with a male side and a female side. He had no backside, two faces. And, but you can't have a relationship with yourself. So God performs what the Bible describes as the first surgery and kind of removes one facade and builds a different anatomy for it. And then seals things up and introduces Adam to Eve. She has the new and improved brain, the new and improved heart, and Adam now gets to know his companion. Chava, Eve, his wife. And God marries them. God puts them together. Although they were initially inhabiting one sack, if you will, one body. God separates them and creates two different people. So Adam wanted relationship. When he had two sides, he craved relationship. He wanted to be with others. Well, <laughs> if, if the first human being in, in the Torah's narration of things craves relationship before he even craves food, relationship has got to be very, very important. And anything that important certainly has instructions that come along with it. And there are many instructions. One of the most important mitzvot in the Torah, and it is a mitzvah in the system of positive mitzvahs, is the mitzvah of loving your fellow. Rabbi Akiva wisely observed that it is a cloud gadol Torah. Although it is a mitzvah, a single unit, in fact, it comprises an enormous principle in the Torah because many, many of the mitzvot are connected to this principle of loving your fellow. 
In fact, according to the Gemara, there's another whole read on the concept of it being a great principle in the Torah. If we go back to the idea of Rabbi Akiva's teacher, Hillel, in the generation prior, Hillel said to the man who wanted to convert standing on one foot, a rather ridiculous proposition, an unreasonable request. Shammai, who was extremely measured and demanding, exacting and precise, he hit him over the head with a, with a yardstick. He said, this is ridiculous. What nerve, what gall, what chutzpah, what insolence. But Hillel said, what is hateful to you, do not do unto others. And Rashi says that the simple first blush meaning is, Re'acha, your fellow is God. So it's a big principle. Relationship with God and relationship with people, they, they almost meld together in the same unit, in the same mitzvah, which is ultimately embracing all of Judaism. The Alter Rebbe, in the 32nd chapter of Tanya, Pedic Lev, he talks about the second interpretation. Not that Reyacha is God, but that Reyacha is your fellow and explains how even if we view the mitzvah of loving your fellow as your fellow, it still can be seen as the entire Torah because its fulfillment requires such inner change that it's tantamount to all of the things Judaism expects of us. But, but beyond this, the fact remains that so many mitzvahs govern our relationship with others. Number one, we're supposed to love. And what exactly does that mean? Is it an emotional thing? Is it a romantic thing? We're supposed to love everybody romantically? God forbid. Love everybody like your brother or sister? It doesn't say that. Is there then no difference between family and non-family? Does Judaism view family as a false construction? Of course not. Family is very important. One is required to be kind to family first. So what does it mean to love? And then we go further. Don't love him like a brother or sister. Love him like yourself. Maimonides Rambam says on a literal level, this means care about somebody else's welfare like you care about your own. As the Tzemach Tzadik explains in the Derech Mitzvah in the same way that you choose to minimize your faults and maximize your successes, in the same way that we all have a bit of a dishonest or jaded view of ourselves, of course, tilted in a positive direction, where the things that we do well, we're really impressed with. And the things we don't do well, well, it's not such a big deal. That's how you should view others. So there are instructions about, about how we treat other people, about how we engage in relationship. But as the Chavis Halavava says in the beginning of his book, this is not a book about halacha. This is not a book about behavior. This is about a book of attitudes. This is about a book of perspective. It's about a book of faith. And what Rabbeinu Bachai is about to speak about now is not only what you do insofar as others are concerned, how I govern myself when it comes to relationship, but rather, what's the faith perspective? How does a person who lives a life infused with betochen engage and view relationship. So we're going to talk about that now. We're going to talk about the idea of betachen. This is the third category. 
And we're going to be focusing on matters which, as the Kihat edition puts it, affect a person's social interactions. So if you're following along in the Kihat book, it's on page 148. This portion of the book is entitled Proper Attitude in Social Interactions. That's an interesting way to title it. And uh, this, is, this is where Bitochen becomes a key component of the way we are going to be choosing others. If you're just joining, welcome. If you haven't yet, haven't yet subscribed, please be so kind and subscribe. It helps us in broadcasting options and does lots of other good things. So if you can subscribe at youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Share that with your friends and relatives. I thank you in advance. We are now going to begin to study inside everything that we've talked about over the last, um, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. That's just been a preface. Avo, and I have to tell you, it's a rather unusual way to begin a new conversation. Avo usually means something, but, but, he translates it in the Kiat edition as, however, what's the however? I don't know. I'm not sure yet. I think as we will make our way through this Chelek HaShlishi, we will understand why this section begins with an aval. There's, 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 some, there's a however here. Something is different about the way Betochen is going to shift or change our view of relationship and the way it shifted and changed the way we view personal income. I don't know what it is, but it's, it's going to be something. It's going to become clear to us. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. So the chelik hashlishi vehem, and they are inyonei ishtoi. These are the matters that pertain. These are the things that are, if you will, related to the matters that concern one's wife. Extremely important relationship. It's the first relationship that Rabbeinu Bachai talks about here. Bonof, your relationship with your children. Bnei Beito, your household. But isn't your household your children? Well, it seems not. The Patlechem suggests that the word Bnei Beito, literally sons of your house, is a euphemism, and it refers to Mishartov, personal aids or assistance what used to be called in antiquity servants. You know, people who maybe didn't have a family of their own or success of their own. And they would be indentured. They would be working in somebody's house. So they'd be part of the household. They likely, they were like a, they lived in the home. They ate at the table or of the same food. I suppose you could liken this to, in the modern day and age, many, many, many families have a, a live-in nanny, especially when children are small, if both parents are working. Kroivov, one's relatives. To me, it's fascinating. It's fascinating that, you know, there's an order here. We're talking about one of the greatest luminaries, one of the greatest minds of all time, 
Rabbeinu B'chayi Ibn Kuda. And whilst he didn't write this in the Hebrew that we're reading, right? That was done by his translator. I keep forgetting his first name. It was Yehuda ibn Tibbin, if I'm not making a mistake. Yes. Yeah. Rabbi Yehuda ibn Tibbin. A great Sephardic sage and a wonderful physician who was a translator of Torah works. So I, I, I don't believe Rabbi ibn Tibbin imposed his own ideas. He was a Rishon. He was, he's considered to be one of the great scholars of, of the medieval age. But... There's an order here. There's an order. I, I find it fascinating that there's no mention of parents. It's almost like the relationship with parents is a relationship that is fully governed by Torah. Both in what you do and how you view your parents. I think Rabbeinu Bechayah feels he has nothing to add. He's not going to tell you how you treat your parents. The Torah told you how to treat your parents. The Torah uses the word kavod, honor. The Torah uses the word yira, awe, profound respect. The Torah gives us actual instructions. It's one of the proverbial Ten Commandments, one of the 248 positive commandments of the Torah. It's honor your father and your mother. So that's not even a question. If somebody were to say, so the way I treat my parents, that's a part of Torah? Are, are, are you kidding? I know most people can't repeat 248 positive commandments or 365 negative commandments, but just about everybody I know is familiar with 10 of those mitzvahs, really called Aserat Dibro, 10 statements, but euphemistically referred to as 10 commandments. The fifth commandment. I mean, we heard, that, we heard God speaking that to Moshe Rabbeinu himself. But the Torah doesn't give us instructions about how to treat our spouse. The Torah doesn't give us specific instructions of how we treat our children. We have an obligation to teach Torah to our children. We have an obligation to educate our children. But that's not a relationship. So, so what's the faith or betochen way, the trust way, the Torah trust way, to have that relationship? To me, it's interesting that the Rabbeinu B'chaya emphasized first B'nai Beito, who are not related to you but they're living in your house. And then afterwards, he talks about Karovov. Then he talks about your relatives. You can't choose your relatives, per se. And you have a relationship with your relatives just by virtue of the fact that you're related. You might have a good relationship or not, but you have a relationship. It's much harder to be ambivalent towards relatives These are innate relationships. Then the next relationship he talks about is the people you love, your good friends. Ohavav. These are the friendships that are built on love. You're attracted to a person. You want to spend time with this person. You enjoy engaging with this person. It's a, it's a loving kind of relationship. This is not chas v'shalom, God forbid, romantic. It's loving. Love has many forms. Love your parents, love your siblings, you love your children. You, you can love your friends. And then after that comes Oivov. 
Because the only thing that really kind of engages us, moves us, or occupies space within our cerebral and emotional hard drives is the people we intensely dislike. Dislike, I mean the technical word hate, enemy, is not ambivalence. You may want to be ambivalent to certain people. You may behave ambivalent toward them, but they get under your skin. Maybe because you perceive them as a threat. Maybe they're competing with you in a particular arena that you desire to have success. The point, though, is that the concept of an oyev, of an enemy, is a person you have a relationship with. Many people think that relationship means friendship. No, relationship means how I relate. When I'm ambivalent to something, I'm really not relating. What does it mean to you? How do you relate to it? I don't. Either because I don't care or I don't know. (laughs) That's a famous joke. What's the difference between apathy and ignorance? The man said, I don't know and I don't care. So then there's the oivav. Now after this, we talk about the concept of miudov. What are miudov? So here we're going to take a look once again in the Mepharshim to understand this better. The Paslechem says that we see the term moda in the book or scroll of Ruth. Naomi, who is the mother-in-law of Ruth from her first marriage, They've, they've come back to the land of Israel and she has a relative, a very, very highly respected relative. Now, it's a little odd when you study the book of Ruth because if this person is so closely related, why wouldn't Naomi just knock on the door and say, hi, it's Naomi, yeah, I'm the lady who ran away, but I'm back. I'm a widow now. I'm bereaved. I lost two sons. I have this phenomenal daughter-in-law who cleaves to me and I don't really have any food or a place to be. How about taking care of your relative? She, in fact, does not do that. She sends Ruth off to collect gleanings. She's hoping that her relative will see Ruth and choose to redeem her. And that, of course, is a whole separate subject. I'm, I'm, I'm... privileged, Baruch Hashem, to have given classes, something like 80-something classes on the entire Megillah of Rus, and I encourage you to watch all of them. I don't remember how many classes there were, but there was a lot of classes on Ruth, and, and I was, Baruch Hashem, privileged to finish the study and teaching of the entire scroll. So this is a question that's asked there, and, and, and it's a good question. But we're not going to focus on the narrative, a story of Ruth. We're just going to focus on the verbiage now. So in the beginning of the second chapter, the the narrator of the story says, There was a, an esteemed relative. I mean, he was the chief justice of the Jewish people. Boaz is a very important man. So that's a relationship she had with him. But it's a relationship that's punctuated with a sense of, it's not a lateral relationship. He was a person of tremendous respect, tremendous esteem. So there are people with whom we have relationships that we look up to. 
or we are respectful towards, in awe of, wowed by. It's one kind of relationship. They're not our friends. We're not, we don't have like a loving relationship. They don't love me. I don't love them. I don't detest them. They're not my enemy. So what kind of relationship is it? What's the currency of the relationship? The answer is esteem, respect. There's a distance. And then there's makirov. So a makirov is, uh, the word makir means to recognize. People you recognize. What does this mean? What does it mean to uh, a person with whom there is recognition? I guess you'd call that in English uh, an acquaintance. See, here in the Kahata edition, they, they translated Miudov. I, I actually like the way they translated it. They wrote, people with whom, whom he holds in high esteem. It's, it's an esteem kind of relationship. And then there's acquaintances. Now, an acquaintance is somebody you know. If you happen to be in a place where you don't know anybody else and you meet an acquaintance, it's like, wow, how you doing? You're best friends. If you're in a place where you're within your comfort, within your own little circle, and there's an acquaintance, you know, it's like, hi. Yeah, it's a guy I was in school with 30 years ago. It's not a friend. I wasn't excited to pick up the phone and say, hey, my son is engaged. My daughter's engaged. I was like, well, I didn't speak to the guy in 25 years. It's an acquaintance. We all have acquaintances. There are people we see on a daily basis that are acquaintances. Maybe they're people we see at our workplaces. Maybe they're people we see at, at the house of worship we attend, assuming that religion is an important part of your life. Maybe they're just people you know, neighbors. It's acquaintances. There is a relationship. Depending on the circumstances, that relationship could be more or less pronounced, but there is a relationship. I'm not indifferent, and the relationship is defined not by emotion, like love or hate, but rather it's defined by an awareness of, a recognition of. So if you could pick that person out of a crowd, look at a crowd and say, oh, that's the person I'm talking about. That's a person you recognize. It begins with recognition. Not, not bestowing recognition, but the point that you single this person out from others. He's not just a nameless, faceless crowd. Oh, I saw an acquaintance of mine. And if you're, uh, you know, hard up, you'd be very happy to see your acquaintance. So these are all different kinds of relationships. And by the way, just as these relationships are all different, there's a unique way betachen governs each of them. How fascinating is that? It's not just a general thing. Like, we don't have betachen. Betachen applies. Its application is unique to the different kinds of people and relationships. Rebbeinu Bachaya goes further and he says, There may be people who are above you, maybe in social status, maybe on a technical level. There's a people whose help you might need to solicit. Important people. We don't hold them in high esteem, but they're above you. Or maybe there are people who might turn to you for help. So they're you have a different kind of relationship with them. They are in the class of people whom, I don't think the right word is looked down at, but they're, they are in the position of being a recipient from you. So there's a different kind of relationship. You know, if I, could, if I'm, if I may, I'll like personalize this. I could be in 
three different environments as a Torah teacher, as a student of Torah. I could be in the, in the presence of people who are wiser, older, more, more erudite and insightful than I. So I'm kind of careful with my words when I'm in that kind of company. Right? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not comfortable. I'm, I'm actually hoping I'll learn something. I'm expecting to learn something. And I don't think that I'm going to have anything to teach or offer. So it's one kind of relationship. And then you're with peers, colleagues who are, you know, kind of on the same level, and they could be on a wide range. I think everything we've talked about is kind of like a, on a peer relationship. And then there are people who, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll be somewhere, and these are people who are expecting me to enlighten them, to, to share something. I'm, I'm like, I know that if I'm going to be in that milieu, in that environment, I'm going to be looked up to in the area of Yiddishkeit and expected to give guidance or, or inspiration. It's a different kind of relationship. All of these relationships have to become defined by, infused with, and governed under the ages of betachen of trust in Hashem. Why? That's a good question. <laughs> I think it's a question that we're going to answer together as we find out what exactly is the issue. Like, I understand I need to make a living. So I'm getting out there to find my income and it's not coming. And I'm getting really frustrated. I'm like, God, what's going on over here? Betochen, have trust, it'll be good. But why do I need betochen, trust in a relationship? I mean, not trust, trusting somebody else, trusting Hashem in a relationship with people. Why? That's a good question. It's a good question that we're going to be answering. And in fact, Rabbeinu Bechaya says the following. So here's the thing. Vuhu. And this you must know. She'ein odom nimlat me'echod mishnei A person cannot escape from one of two scenarios. There's going, life is going to play itself out on one stage or the other. It is not possible for you to be in neither situation. Now, we don't have to be in either situation in like fashion. There, there, there's loneliness and then there's loneliness. There's engagement or socially involved and then there's socially active. So there are many levels of this. But you're either going to be a socially active person or you're going to be a loner. That's the way things are. That's, that's the definition of the human condition. You can't escape. You have to be in one of these two situations. What are the shnei dvarim? What are the two things? So one of the situations is sheyi and nochri that you should be I guess for lack of a, a better word I'm going to use the word alien. I don't want to use the word stranger because that's a ger. That's a stranger really. Hanachri means a person who is not a, a kindred soul. He's not, he's not part of this situation. He's outside. He's, he's alien to the situation. So if we would use, for example, other terminology, you could have, let's say, I live in Canada. I'm a, I'm a Canadian citizen. So I could be among Canadian citizens, all of whom have the same rights and perhaps responsibilities. 
And then I could be in the company of aliens. I don't mean ET. I'm not talking extraterrestrials. Aliens as in people who are not natural to this country. They either weren't born or naturalized here in Canada. So they have, they have a different set of rights. They say, are you, are you a citizen or not? When it comes to voting, I say, what do you mean? Who, wait, do you have your proof of citizenship? When you're coming into a country at border control, there's going to be foreigners and locals, citizens and non-citizens. So one is called a nochri. In the parlance of Torah, the word nochri refers to somebody who isn't Jewish because we're members of the tribe. And this person is a nochri. He's, I guess, what you would call a stranger, an outsider, an alien, not part of this group. So you are either going to be an outsider, an alien, not connecting to the people around you, or you will be within a family unit. You will be part of relatives. You're either engaged with others or you're living in solitude. That's, those are your options. And of course, there can be a range in, in loneliness and in solitude. A person could be lonely because they're not, for example, married or don't have children, so they're alone, but they're, they're, not, all, they're not loners. They're not living in the middle of a desert somewhere. They're not like man in the Mojave, you know, like they're like, you know, go to work every day and they go shopping and they have, maybe they know the door person. I, I don't know. They have acquaintances. And then there could be a person who literally is living in the middle of the Appalachians. He's all alone. So we're not talking about one extreme or the other, but we're talking about, you know, these two overarching terms of being a person who's socially active or a person who's isolated. And we as human beings are going to be living one way or the other. And, And both of these... Both of these have a different perspective and approach, betachen-based kind of attitude that has to be developed and applied. So this is the preface. And now that we've gotten past the preface, we're going to move into the specifics. And today's class, of course, is called Alone. And it alone will not cover all of the loneliness. (laughs) <laughs> because we're significantly into, we've cut into our time already, and I, I, I think this is what, you know, the kind of things we've spoken about today are important. I, I hope you don't feel I bored you. I think this was an important conversation for us to engage in, and us to, to kind of, you know, I guess, I guess frame the narrative. It's important to frame, to frame this narrative. So what are, we, what are we doing? And it's not only one class. There's going to be a, a whole bunch of episodes that will focus on this idea of of relationships, so now you have it framed. And we're going to move into the first of the two situations where you're going to talk about betochen for the person who is alone. How do you deal with solitude? How do you deal with loneliness? It's a very sad thing, loneliness. It could be a heartbreaking thing. 
It was a sage who famously lacked companionship. He was peerless. It's a long story, and I'm going to share it with you in a future episode of a man named Choni Hamagal who falls asleep for 70 years. I guess that's the origin of the Rip Van Winkle legend, but this was real. And he came back, and nobody knew who he was. And he was alone in the world, and he said, I, I, I can either exit, God, either take me, or find me some peers, bring me some back some of my friends. I can't live like this. It's just obviously a very difficult thing to do, to live alone. But if Hashem puts certain people in that situation, surely He's giving the people He put in that situation, He's giving them the wherewithal to be able to deal with it. So what's the strategy? How do you cope with something like solitude or loneliness? Says Rabbeinu Bechaya, and if it will be Nachri, if the two stages for him, he's on the lonely stage, he's alone. So Rabbeinu Bechaya begins by first giving the general approach. In one brushstroke, he sketches the whole panorama, the whole thing, one brushstroke. He says, Your relationship is going to be with God. You don't have any other relationships. Not that this is the preferred or best way to live, but this is the situation you're in. You don't have relationships. You must know that your relationship is going to be with God. What does this mean? The Neder Bar-Kodesh says, what Rabbeinu B'chaya means to say here is, when you're placing your trust in others or have nobody to trust, when you're alone, when you have people that you fear or detest or people you love or nobody to talk to. In every one of the situations, you're going to need betochen. So what kind of betochen are you going to need when you're all alone? Shiyi you might be alone. So if you're alone, the answer is that what you need to have is tzivsoi. What is tzivusoi or tzivsoi? What does this refer to? What does it mean? Tzivtoi lelekov says the paslecha means the word tzivtoi is lashoin hischabrus. It comes from the terminology of creating togetherness fusion, oneness, nexus. Lechaber comes from the word to put things together. The city Chevron, which is the city with the oldest Jewish history in the whole world, way older than Jerusalem, comes from the term Hishabrus. Togetherness being woven together, melting into oneness. As our sages tell us, Loma Nikra Shmo Chevron. Why, in fact, did God ordain the name of this place to be Chevron? 
And the answer is, it was there that the patriarchs and matriarchs who lived in different times and in different ways, it's there that they kind of all fused together. You don't go to Avraham Avinu more so than Yitzchak or Yaakov. You don't go to Mother Sarah more so than Rivka or Leah. When one goes to Ma'orat HaMachpelah, when one goes to the double cave, so to speak, one goes to the resting site of our ancestors, we go to our ancestors, our patriarchs and matriarchs. The Rambam, Maimonides, had the privilege of visiting Hebron once in his life. Do you know that he observed that day? I believe it was in Cheshvan, the 11th or 13th of Cheshvan. I think he observed this, a personal festival, a personal Yom Tov, till the end of his days. He says, he writes, it was the day I got to meet my ancestors. And then he went to Kever Rochel. When you go to Rochel, you're going to Mother Rachel. There's nobody else there. So Hebron is about togetherness. If something breaks, something cracks, and you put it together, that's an act of Chibur. Incidentally, physical intimacy is called, in the language of our sages, Chibur. And of course, a friend is called a Chaver. It all comes from the same terminology. And this is similar to the terminology that our sages use in Mesechet Brachot. And this is found on Daf Vov Amid Beis. The Gemara says over there that the purpose, that the reason for one's creation, a person was loy nivro, was not created elo. A person was not created save to be able to, so to speak, connect. The whole wide world, the whole world, was not created save. Find this Gemara over here. So it's either Shimon ben Azai or others say, Amr leb Shimon ben Zeme, kola oilam kuli le nivra eloka de liyais So that people could be together. Lazeh. To this person, who is this person? This person is the person who has yirat shemayim. So, so the person who has a sense of awe, of esteem for Hashem, for heaven. So all of the other people in the world kind of revolve around this person. The Shittim Bekubetzes in his commentary here says that, that this person's service to Hashem is of such overriding importance that it's the privilege of others to be created so that they could help him. Because if, because if he's doing what he's supposed to do, everybody benefits. I'll tell you, what, tell you what it's like. Imagine if you have a, a, a fairly simple person whose, whose privilege in life is to help a person of tremendous value and sophistication, a person who can bring about wonderful good things. And they say to the person, so what's your job? He says, my job is to help him. I'm just here to help him. 
The whole world is created for him. Rambam, Maimonides, uses a fascinating kind of um, depiction. He speaks about this uh, palace that was built somewhere, and that involves thousands of, of, of people and tens of thousands of moving pieces. In, in, and he says, and it was all about this great, pious, extraordinary individual who was once sweltering under the heat and sought shelter in its shade, and he said all that was created for that purpose. So a lot of moving pieces, a lot of things going on, and it's all for one moment. And that one moment involves, you know, could involve that one person. So what do we see from this? What we see from the Gemara is the word letzavais clearly means connection. Now, here we're talking about a person who's lonely. A person who's lonely. See, Sean Neal saying no one is bored. It's so interesting that you said that because we're going to talk about boredom in a minute. Unless you're maybe looking in the book and you saw the next word is boredom. So he says, a person could be, it's not necessarily bored. I know they translate it here as, as loneliness. Others translate it as boredom. I'm not so sure that either is an accurate translation. You don't have other relationship. But a human being needs relationship. Never will you hear Rabbeinu Bachaya say, ah, relationship is overrated. Who needs it? Be alone. Live in a desert. Yeah, you don't need it. We need relationship. But the person who, for whatever reason, doesn't have relationship, he, then his relationship will be with God himself. And when will this be? This will be at the time that this solitudal, lonely person is at the time of his Hishtomimut. This is important. We have to understand what this word means. By the way, incidentally, the Neda Bakredish has a, a different take on the word. He uses the term tzavta besima from the Gemara Mesechet Sukkah, which is found on page 52. And the Gemara there is actually referring to a spiritual relationship with God. His, he's like connected to this, this treasure, this, this ideal which I find interesting because, because the Paslechem's reference from the Gemara in Meseches Brachas is talking about an interpersonal relationship, but it's not, it's not even a relationship thing. It's, it's, the, it's on a, almost on a technical, functional level, but he's using it for, to frame the verbiage because we've got we to gotta get this, the verbiage here. So the Neder Bakredish chooses a different Talmudic expression, and, and that seems to be more along the lines of of what Rabbeinu B'chai is talking about. But I, but I think the Paslechem wants to emphasize that this is practical. This is, there's a practical element over here. At any rate, however we understand this language, it certainly means being connected to Hashem. That's without a question. Be'et hishtomimuto. At the time of his hishtomimut, at the time of his aloneness. So what does this mean? The Neder Bakoidesh sends us off to the book of Ezekiel. And it's really interesting stuff. So, Yecheskel Hanavi, Ezekiel, he's sent on a lot of missions that he prefers not to be involved with. Right? Like if you look in 
If you look at the beginning of the second chapter in the Steinzeltz edition, he, and I'm just going to read to you from the preface. He says, after the intimidating vision that caused him to fall on his face, Ezekiel now standing, hears a voice from God directing him to assume his mission as a prophet of Israel. On this occasion, it was alluded to Ezekiel that the messages he would convey to the people would include mourning and suffering. And it was unlikely that his words would be internalized by his rebellious compatriots. Yechesko Hanavi, Ezekiel, has no option. He's got to strengthen himself and he's going to remain faithful in his mission. Whether or not he's going to be successful. He doesn't have that choice. So, in the, in the, in the third chapter, Ezekiel is sent to, to go and speak to the exiles. And there's this fascinating description of God saying to him, whether they will heed or they will not heed, your task is to state my words. You're going to go there. You have to hope they're going to listen. Their obedience, it's not your responsibility. And even if they will accept that you're a prophet, they may still be very stubborn. And continue with their bad ways and this wind lifts them up and sends them off. Sends them off, whatever this means. And now, in sharp contrast to the sweetness that he experienced when receiving his prophecy, he goes in a profound state of bitterness and fury. And he comes to Tel Aviv. I'm not exaggerating. That's, Tel Aviv actually is the name of the place here. It's not the Tel Aviv of today. It's, uh, <laughs> Tel Aviv is, and in the Steinsaltz edition, he notes that in Akkadian, the name Tel Aviv means settlement destroyed by inundation. In Akkadian, the word abubi, which is, I guess, like aviv, means a flood, or what we call in Yiddish, inundation. So to the names of several places in Babylonia to which the people of Yehuda were exiled, the prefix tel is appended. Telmala, Telchorsha. And this may attest to the Babylonian policy of settling exiles in destroyed or ruined places. Rabbi Evan Yisrael notes that the precise location of Tel Aviv in antiquity, is unknown, although the assumption is that it was a rural area near the Kevar River, which is somewhere in Syria, by the way. So he's, Yechezkel um, Navi says, I come to the, to the exiles, Tel Aviv and Tel Aviv, El Nahakvar, they're at the Kevar River. And where they were dwelling, he spent seven days, seven days with them. And he sat there among them, mashmim b'seichem. Mashmim b'seichem. What does that mean? The Metsudas Tzien says, Mashmim, Inyan Timhoin Ushtika. It means to be 
stunned, silenced. For example, he says, there's a verse in the prophecies of Daniel in the fourth chapter that's, I was astounded. I was unable. I was unable to say anything. Rashi puts it, Odom Mishutak, a person who is silenced. Miladaber. Silenced. So according to Neder Bakredesh, when the person is in a state of stunned silence, maybe he's overwhelmed, doesn't, doesn't call him bored. Productive people, holy people, uh, righteous people, they don't get bored. I don't know how anybody gets bored, in fact. I don't know, my kids tell me they're bored sometimes. What do you mean bored? So much to do. There's so much to learn. There's so much to accomplish, so much to achieve. <laughs> Life is so short. I can't. I can't remember the last time I was bored. I don't, know what it, I don't even know what that means, actually. But at any rate, so that's not how it's translated here. It's not how it's translated. And uh, I see Arquello is saying, perhaps one should accept the long seasons of loneliness and utilize them in a positive way to connect to Hashem, but stay open to the opportunity to reach out to others. You know, Arquello, that is a very, very beautiful way to put it. And you're, you're right on the money. You're right on the money. So... The question now is, what happens if for whatever reason you are compelled to be alone? How do you deal with that? What's the strategy when you're in this stunned state, when you're not, you don't have anybody to talk to? What's the strategy? How do you maintain a sense of, of joy and equilibrium? What's the betochen application here? Of course, a person should not choose this kind of circumstance. And we're going to talk about that. It's problematic because Rabbeinu Bachaya seems to indicate that there's tremendous virtue to this aloneness and solitude. Well, we're going to have to work through this. But the, the, what I want to say to you is that yes, a person should seek to engage with others and yes, there is a virtue in every situation. I guess we call that the silver lining. There's always a positive possibility. The question is, what is that? And I think that a key element is not only what it is, but are we being honest with ourselves? That is to say, if I convince myself of something that's not true because it's a coping mechanism for me, is that actually, is that actually a good idea? Let me give an example. So I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, all of you have heard of Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. And Viktor Frankl pioneers this new psychology, which he calls logotherapy. And it's all about finding meaning, self-actualizing. That that's more important than biological needs. In sharp contrast to an American psychiatrist living at the same time who came from New York or the tri-state area, Abraham Maslow, who created the famous Pyramid of Needs, places self-actualization as the pinnacle, cherry on the top. And by Maslow's definition, most people probably never self-actualize. They never actually achieve. But that's not necessary. You don't need that to live. But Frankel argues that you do need that to live. And he said if a person can have all of his or her biological needs met, they have food and air and shelter and, 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 and warmth, they have these things, but they have, they have no fervor, no passion, no meaning in life. They won't be able to survive. He maintains that meaning is a more important force, a driving force in life, than even sometimes biological needs. 
And he claimed that he was able to see this in Auschwitz, in the camps, where people who had meaning lived and people who had no meaning simply didn't. No biological needs were met. Nobody had any needs. The only thing they could possibly have was meaning. Now, how did he survive? So he survived by imagining or convincing himself that his wife was alive. And he survived for his wife because he wanted to meet his wife. By his own admission, he says that the most difficult time for him was not in the concentration camp, but after the war when he discovered that his wife had actually been killed. So he was living a lie. He created meaning for himself which wasn't true. That might have worked for Viktor Frankl in his moment of need. Rabbeinu Bechaya is not going to tell you, well, convince yourself of Baba Meiser, as we say in Yiddish. Just tell yourself some kind of tale, some kind of story, and you'll be fine. That's not emet. Torah is emet. Torah is going to give you real meaning. If Hashem put you in that situation, there's got to be something real that you can accomplish there. And it's not just, how do I survive this so I can get to something meaningful, something good, something important. Every moment of life is meaningful. Judaism rejects the idea that there are days that have no meaning, that are just fillers until I get to the next good moment. Every day is meaningful. Every moment is a gift. How do I see that gift? How do I utilize that gift? How do I experience that gift when I'm in pain due to solitude and loneliness? I'm stunned. So there could be times when it's not an issue. I'm, I'm busy. I have things to do. A person is davening now. You have to daven with uh, holding somebody's hand? You have to sit on somebody's lap? What does it mean? What do, you, what do you need to daven? Yes, it's nicer to daven with others, but you can daven. You can pray to God by yourself. I'm sure every one of us experienced it. You can read a book by yourself. You don't have to read a book together with others. You can do a task, whether it painting or, or cooking or writing. In fact, people prefer to be left alone and be able to focus, to be able to accomplish things like that. But then there's times of ishtomimuto, when you're like stunned and overwhelmed and you can't, can, can't, you can't express yourself. You're kind of shriveled up because of the circumstances. What do you do then? This is, this is what we're driving at. Now, the Paslechem takes a different approach. He says that the word hishtomimut does not mean, it's not being, it's not like in a stunned state, in a non-communicative, non-engaging state, where you, I guess, would, like for lack of better terminology, kind of curl up in a ball and not have the ability to function. He says it's lashon, it's the language of hitbodedut, of aloneness. Like yoshev bodod, like a person sitting alone. And he says this could be related to boredom because it's Bali Asik. A person who has nothing to do is Yoshev Shomim. He's sitting there all alone. And this is actually a Gemara in Meseches Ksubis. On page 59, side B, the Gemara talks about this idea of, of Yoshev Shomim. And, and yes, it is uh, very close to the concept of what we would call in, um, in the modern vernacular boredom. The person is He's alone. He's not. He's he's unengaged. He's estranged from the situations around him. And as such, because a person feels this aloneness, 
he's, he's suffering. So, how do you deal with it? The Gemara there is specifically speaking about um, a person is divorced, a person is alone, a person doesn't have that close, intimate companionship and support. So in that, in that time, however we understand this, the person's focus has to be closeness to Hashem. And there's a virtue. There's, a, there's an opportunity to be close to Hashem. V'yiftach alov b'geiruto. And in this time, he should trust, place his trust in Hashem. Place his trust in Hashem. V'yala alibo. A person must bring to mind or entertain within his heart. I think it emphasis is not yala machshavto. It doesn't say bring it to mind. It's not enough to be engaging cerebrally, to be thinking conceptually. This is something you have to relate to. So you have to kind of take this to heart, internalize this idea. And I mean you're doing it to comfort yourself, but you're not comforting yourself with a lie. What's the comfort? Yala alibo geirus hanefesh ba'olam hazeh. A person should contemplate and internalize the, the fact that the soul is a foreigner. The soul is estranged in this world. But, you know, when you're living amongst the people of this world, that all the people are like, everybody's a stranger on some level. Everybody is estranged. Everybody feels bereft and foreign, at least from his neshama side, and after all, isn't that who we really are? Isn't the definition of a human being not his body, but rather his consciousness and soul? As the Marple and Nefesh puts it, Al Yosem El don't take to heart to be demoralized and despondent, Masha, who gave her that you're a foreigner, a stranger, alone. We're all really on some level foreign, estranged, and alone. Hanefesh, who Of course, the Alter Rebbe adds the word mamash. This is Lurianic terminology, the Alter Rebbe words that's mamash, that the soul is a piece of God from on high. Therefore, the soul is always estranged, lonely, isolated. So that's very nice, but I'm not my soul. So, so he says, yeah, but you know, be'emes ikar ha'adam hu ha'nefesh. That's really who we are, our spiritual consciousness. So if so, this is not a unique problem. I'm not the only one who's alone. On some level, everybody is suffering from loneliness. Everybody is peerless. Everybody is isolated. At least their neshama feels that way. And this is as per the expression that's found in the book of Leviticus. The Gemara there speaks about the land, the Torah speaks, pardon me, about the land of Israel. And the Torah in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23 says, 
Kigerim v'toishovim atem imodi. The Torah says that you cannot sell a portion of the land of Israel permanently, in perpetuity, because the land is mine, God says, and you are only sojourners. You are only temporary residents with me. Now this is referring to the Jubilee year. It's called in Hebrew Yovel. So in the Jubilee, any land that was, that was sold will revert back to its original owner. And the Torah is telling us why. Because you are sojourners. In other words, you can't sell the land forever because you never really owned the land. You own the ability to use the land. Okay, that has a shelf life. It has an expiration date. And by extension, just as we are all, rather than owners, temporary sojourners in the land of Israel, which really belongs to Hashem, so really all of us are temporary sojourners. We're all foreigners in this world. We're all here on a journey. It's a beautiful story that's told about the Magad of Mizrich. The story has since been appropriated and um, people filling in the face and the name of the sage with whom it happened with later scholars of, of various movements. But we're, we're pretty certain we have it on the best of authority. Like that's free to get out the documents as we have with the Magad of Mizrich. So a man comes to the Magad and the Magad is at this time the putative leader of the new Hasidic movement, a movement that has spread across Eastern Europe and is, is increasingly influential in the fabric of Jewish life. And, and um, you know, the Hasidic movement is a powerful, it's a powerful movement. And this is the leader. And he visits him in the house and he's living very, very simply. Like really austere conditions. He didn't even have a table. He had like a a trunk of, of a tree trunk with a rough board that was balanced on it. And I was astounded. He says, like, this is Rabbi, you're like, you're like the, the Magad of Mizrich, you're like the leader of the Hasidim. It's like, where's your furniture? So the Magad smiled and he said to this fellow, where's your furniture? You have furniture? He said, oh, of course I have furniture. I have beautiful furniture. I have a, it's all back home, but I don't travel with my furniture, but I have it. And the Magad said, very nice, I also have lots of furniture. I don't travel with my furniture. He said, I'm on a journey now. So all of life is transient. All of life is temporary. And this actually is going to flow into the next point that Ben Abhai is going to make about the temporary nature of things. The thing is this. The neshama is out of sorts. The neshama is isolated. It's estranged. The neshama is stuck in its body. It can't talk neshama language. It can't connect with other neshamas. All the neshama can connect to, the only way the neshama, the soul, finds solace and comfort is its relationship with God. So, so Rabbeinu Bechayah says, okay, you are your neshama. Find solace and comfort in your relationship with God. But you say, but no, 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 I'm a person. I'm, I'm flesh and blood. I'm a, I'm a terrestrial individual. I can't find satisfaction in a relationship that's non-terrestrial, that's, that I can't see that... Why not, says Rebbeinu B'chayah. It's not optimal, it's not perfect, but it's real. And in fact, the present situation that you're in may well assist you in deepening your relationship with Hashem. It may be the greatest favor Hashem has done for you. Rabbeinu Yankiv Emden brings another verse here. 
He says, Geir in the Tehillim, Davina Melech says, Geir or Noichi Imoch, Toishov Kechola Voisai. I am like a stranger with you, a, a resident with all of my ancestors. Davina Melech is focusing on his deeper relationship, his connection to Hashem. We're like strangers, foreigners before you, he says, is found in the book of Chronicles in chapter 29. And as the past Lechem puts it, And in this a person will be able to comfort himself. Instead of being jealous and looking at people who have large, loving, exuberant families and you're all alone. You're all alone. He should remember that every soul feels this aloneness. And he says an interesting thing. We have a principle in the Talmud that when you know that a lot of people are suffering the same condition, somehow it makes it easier to bear. If everybody's lost power and everybody's without electricity, it's somehow easier than when just your house's power has gone out. Because we're all suffering together. We're all in this together. When you know others are in it together, somehow it just, by virtue of human nature, makes us feel better. So he says, this is the point that's being made here. Rabbeinu B'chai is directing you to pay attention to the fact that Torah, and Torah is emet, and Torah uses terminology like stranger and foreigner and sojourner, non-permanent, non-comfortable, non-enmeshed, estranged, alone. Torah uses this terminology. And because Torah uses the terminology, then it's obviously Torah is Torah at Emet. So this is the truth. And there is an element of that. So whether we choose to say, like the Marple and Nefesh says, that your essence is your soul, or whether we choose to look at it as the Paslechem puts it, that you're not, you're not alone in this aloneness, a person can use his loneliness and isolation to deepen his or her relationship with God. And the fact remains that when a person is involved with others, that it becomes a, a bit of a diversion. And in truth, you do have to, if you will, you do have to, on some level, invest and engage with others around you, and that can take you away from your relationship with God. Now, it's the right thing to do. But if you don't have that opportunity, then hey, Utilize your situation and make the best of it. And he should think to himself that this is all temporary. All right, you know, I think we're going we're to break over here. We'll, 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 we'll leave it at this. So the point is, a person should find comfort in the fact that one is not alone. And... Ultimately, ultimately, the neshama is also alone and yet finds comfort in its relationship with Hashem. You too can find comfort with your relationship with Hashem. You know what, let's just do the next little paragraph. The Yachshav believing they should think to himself, all of those who have relatives in this world, in the end, you revert back to being on your own again. No relationships, no relatives or children are going to help him then. 
comes a time when you're going to be alone. So you're anyway going to be alone. And therefore, a person has to comfort himself. And the fact that, so I'm alone now, i got to make the best of it. You know, as he puts it in the Kiyat Dictionary, he says, eventually everyone dies. Even if you live a long time, then you'll outlive your family. And you'll find yourself alone. Alternatively, <laughs> you could die first. All of the advantages that a person has from family or relatives who can help him and provide solace, all of these things are only temporary. In the end, it's us and Hashem. So focus on that. It's the truth. Make the most of it. And that way, instead of your loneliness bringing you down, you can use it as a springboard for personal growth and you can utilize a negative situation to bring forth the positive qualities of an enhanced, uplifted, and more meaningful relationship with Hashem, our common creator. We'll be continuing more about relationships, Be'ezrat Hashem, in the future. I hope you found this informative, a little bit, of, a little bit eye-opening, and we will, this is a very important part of life, a very important part of life and a very important part of the Shara B'Tochen. We will, Be'ezrat Hashem, together, carefully navigate the, the remarkable words and the paradigms and parables that Rabbeinu B'chaya is going to share with us to teach us how to cope with loneliness and isolation in the best way possible. And hopefully, very, very soon, we will all merit an overt and obvious closeness and relationship with Hashem. That is exactly how the era of Mashiach is described. May it be b'mheirav. Will be amen speedily in an hour days. Amen. Thanks so much for joining. God bless you and have a wonderful day.